Welcome to the Creative Soul Healing Podcast. Here we talk about the connection between creativity and healing, and how we are creative, and how creativity helps us heal mentally, physically, and emotionally. Join us now. Hi everyone, Larissa Russell of Creative You Healing, and welcome to the Creative Soul Healing Podcast. Today I have with me Joseph Holmes. Joseph, also known as JMM Love, was born on December 13th, the feast day of Santa Lucia, the patron saint of authors and light. He is a survivor of childhood sexual, physical, and emotional abuse, as well as PTSD disabled combat veteran. He is an Amazon bestselling author, helping people discover their purpose and create lives full of meaning, significance, joy, love, and success via the spiritual poetry of guardian angel, Mary Magdalene. So welcome, Joseph. Thank you for having me. Pleasure yes. to be here. Well, I, I'm interested in what we're going to talk about. So can, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of how you came to be here? Well, um, you know, it all started when I was seven years old and uh, we were, uh, we lived in San Diego and we would visit our uh, grandparents and cousins uh, every summer. And uh, one summer uh, and every, each summer when we returned home, we would take a side trip. This particular summer, we stopped in Nogales, Arizona, which is a border town. And uh, to me, as a seven-year-old kid, it was cool because right across the border is Nogales, Mexico. Same name, right? <laughs> same, same city name in two different countries. But anyway, uh, we came in late at night, went, to, uh, went straight to bed in the motel. And the next morning, everybody was up. My two brothers, my parents were up getting ready to walk to breakfast and I was still in bed. And uh, I was just lying there on my back. And this, at the time I did, it was, it was the grace of Mary Magdalene, but at the time I didn't know, I was told later. I was lying there and this wave of peace entered the top of my head, went through my body and out the soles of my feet. And I, I was seven years old. I didn't know what it was, but I wasn't afraid because it felt good. And um, well, anyway, I, everyone's yelling at me to get up. So I get up and we, we're walking to breakfast and we're waiting at, on the corner for the light to turn so we could cross the street. And it happened again to me. And I didn't tell anybody about it, but that's where it all started. And uh, again, at that time, I didn't know what it was, I just knew what it felt good. And, uh, and from that point on, uh, and this is important because, you know, this was Nogales, Arizona, right? Well, I never, of course, I never forgot that, but years later, decades later, when, you know, when you're walking your path, when you have the courage to walk your path, what I call walking your road to Rome, when you have that courage and you begin doing it, doubts and fears rush in. And that's what stops most people in their tracks. And your angels will uh, create these events in your life, knowing that later on, when you become conscious of your angels, that uh, ego, your ego, right? Ego, E-G-O, an acronym for edging God out, your ego will do everything to convince you that angels do not exist, that you should not be walking your road to Rome. And so 
and, and your angels know this is going to happen. So they create these events. So years, decades later, they have a reference point to send you back to to quell any doubts and fears that you're having. Right? And uh, so that's how it all started. And it was one event after the next. And I had a lot, lot of events that got me where I am today. Yeah. And it sounds like you've been through a lot to get where you are today. Right. As well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that was the, sort of the divine that came through you. Um, but then you had to go through quite a path to be able to, to come back to that, I think. Right. And so when I was, I, I guess, maybe eight or nine, I was molested uh, by a Navy nurse, uh, female, female nurse. And, uh, and then uh, a couple of years later, I was molested in the Seattle Public Library. <laughs> uh, couple years after that, I was molested again. Uh, so, yeah, and so you wonder, you know, well, if, and I often wondered, you know, well, well, if my angels were with me, why were these things happening to me? And, uh, and you know, I think Oprah, it was Oprah who said, life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you, right? So we all have our destiny. To work through and uh the important thing is not to judge it just now you know i understand i'm not uh, minimizing anybody's uh experiences because you know uh if i'm a paraplegic if i have an accident i'm a paraplegic i know it, it would be very difficult for me to sit here and say what i'm about to say but uh, you know life does happen for us and and uh, that can be very tough for some people to grasp and, and even accept. And I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and minimize anybody's experiences uh, uh, because compared to, you know, something like being the paraplegic, is, is, I can't even imagine. And I don't even want to compare my experiences with something like that. But, but anyway, um, yeah, so these things happen and then I went to Vietnam and you know an interesting story again this is you know decades later but you know I was a, a freshman in college and uh, you know I was a kind of a quiet kid to make a lot of friends and, but there was this one lady who befriended me and you know I, I was my first year of college was down in Chula Vista which is uh, right on the border of Mexico so a lot of the Mexican kids would come over drive over, attend classes, and then uh, go back home in, in the evening. And this one Mexican lady, uh, her name was Migdalia, and uh, she befriended me. And we didn't have, she was an art major, I was an anthropology major. We didn't have any classes together, but uh, between classes, if we saw each other or we planned to uh, see each other, we'd spend time together. And she was beautiful. And this is important because uh, not just beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, because she, I never forgot her. And she, uh, she, she was so beautiful. She, you know, there was, if she walked into a room, pe people in the room would stop and look at her, you know? And she had this long black hair that went down 
straight black hair that went down past her buttocks. And I swear it was, it looked like silk. <laughs> I swear. Now these are things that were important because it made her stick in my mind. And uh, anyway, you know, the Vietnam War was raging and they started drafting college students. And I thought, well, you know, I was born and I was raised in San Diego. I'm not gonna move to Canada where it snows, right? So, so I thought, well, if I join, then at least I won't be a grunt, you know, out in the rice paddies, right? So uh, I decided to join. And uh, anyway, uh, and I, I also became homeless. My father kicked me out of the house. I was living in a tent in my friend's backyard. And so all this stuff was going on. And I never told Migdalia that I was leaving. And the last day I saw her, I was in the parking lot at the college. I got some books. I was walking back to class. And she had she carpooled with four, uh, four of her friends. And she always sat in the back in the middle. And anyway, her car was pulling out. She didn't see me. And it was driving away from me. But her friend saw me. So a friend tapped her on the arm and whispered something to her. And Magdalia turned completely around in her seat. She just didn't turn her head. She turned completely around with this ear-to-ear -ear smile. And she waved goodbye to me. She thought she was waving goodbye for the weekend. I never saw her again. Well, so I joined the Army. Uh, I go into a the security agency, which is uh, uh, highly classified stuff that we work with, and uh, got sent to Vietnam. And I was a Morse code interceptor. And anyway, when you get to Vietnam, you have to go to Saigon, which was the capital. And everybody knows you're brand new because, you know, you're, your uniform's green, you know, it's not faded out and your boots are clean. Anyway, all the Vietnamese people would ask me where I was going. And I would say, well, I'm going to play coup, uh, which was up in the central highlands. And they said, oh no, no, that, that's the worst place you can go. That's the most dangerous place in Vietnam. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, what am I gonna do? I have to go, right? So anyway, I get to play coup. I learned uh, later that the, the month I got there, you know, they hired local people to work on the on the compound. And there must have been a, a spy or something because the month I got there, the Viet Cong just launched a mortar attack and just walked those mortars right down where they knew it. When the attack happens, you have to get out of your barracks or wherever you're at and get down to the bunkers. So they knew exactly where people were gonna be running. And they just walked those mortars right down that. And a bunch of guys were killed and wounded. Well, when I got there in May of 1969 to May of 1970, the air base next to us got hit on a weekly basis, two or three times a week. We never took a hit the whole time I was there. When it was my time to leave country, I had to go back to Saigon, wait for my paperwork. I got a call. The unit I worked in took a direct hit and three of my friends that I worked side by side with were killed. 
but the whole year I was there, nothing. Well, you know, I at the time I, I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm protected. You know, I wasn't aware of angels or anything at that time. And uh, so anyway, a few months ago, um, well, a couple, with this pandemic, it was about two years ago, uh, I was having, I was having doubts. And uh, Maggie, I call Mary Magdalene Maggie, Maggie uh, said to me one morning, just out of the blue, said, look at Migdalia. And I'm thinking, Migdalia? I, I hadn't thought about Migdalia in decades. But of course, I never forgot her, you know. Well, you know, I had taken a lot of Spanish when I met Migdalia, and I, I had a lot of Hispanic friends. I had never heard the word Migdalia, name Migdalia. That was a very uncommon uh, Hispanic name. Well, she said, look up the meaning. So I look it up, and it says flower. I said, okay, she, all right, that makes sense. She was like a flower. So the next morning, Maggie says, look up Migdalia. I said, well... I looked her up, this means flower. She said, look her up again and use a different reference. So I looked it up again, it says Migdalia, derivative of Magdalena. And Maggie said, who do you think was with you in Vietnam? And that, and another important point for your listeners is that your angels will often use what I call earth angels. Right? They'll use people. So again, they set these moments up in your life because they know later on you're going to have doubts and fears. And, and if you don't deal with them, you'll never you know, honor your heart and honor your calling. And so they create these events that they can send you back, reference you back to and say, you know, <laughs> stop doubting. <laughs> so, uh, so those are a couple of the stories. But um, the, uh, when Mary Magdalene began, uh, she, she came to me in 2012 and be, began transmitting her poetry to me. And it was around 2 a.m. in the morning. And she's been doing that every morning since 2012. So I have thousands of poems. And, and I write them, I just record them on a, a yellow legal pad. And in, in the beginning, they were quatrain poetry. Four, four stanza po uh, poems, and I could get five to a page. And there's 50 pages to a, a legal pad, right? So that's 50 times five for each pad. And I just got stacks of these pads. And uh, anyway, uh, that was December 2012. In April of 2013, I began to have my first serious doubts. I said, come on, man, these can't be coming from Mary Magdalene. People are going to think I'm nuts, you know? And uh, so the next morning I gave her an ultimatum. I said, I want, I want absolute proof that these are coming from you. You know, you know, I want proof where nobody can question it, you know, like a burning bush, right? Well, the next day, nothing happened, but the poems kept coming, you know? It's like she ignored me. A week went by and still nothing. Well, I forgot about the ultimatum because the poems just kept coming. So that was April. In July, 
uh, Maggie says, I want you to begin publishing these. Now, she never, she never answered my ultimatum. So in July, just out of the blue, she says, I want you to start publishing these. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, maybe I should get some reviews, right? So I went to this website that has thousands of people that provide different services. <clears throat> and uh, so I'm thinking, well, maybe I can pay somebody for their time to read these. And if they want to give me a test, uh, review, they can. I thought that's fine. So I'm just going through these pictures really fast. And I come on this photo of a lady, her name is Angelina, and she provided the service, but it wasn't uh, book reviews or anything. And, uh, but Maggie said, send her an email. So I sent her an email and I, all I said to her was, all I said was, I have some poems. I'll pay you for your time to read them. Uh, I won't pay you for a review. If you want to give me a review, fine. If not, that's fine too. But, uh, and a review can be good or bad. I'll just pay you for your time. And uh, she writes back and she says, well, no, that's not what I do. <laughs> so I was ready to move on, right? So Maggie says, no, stay with her. So we went back and forth for two or three days. Finally, out of exasperation, Angelina emails me. She goes, fine, <laughs> send me some poems. So this time when I send her the poems, I tell her the story about they're coming from Mary Magdalene. And I call Mary Magdalene Maggie because we were calling the poems at the time, Love Notes from Maggie. And so at that time, I explained everything to her. Well, the next day she writes back and she goes, Joseph, I have to tell you this. I love the poems, but I have to tell you this. And you're not going to believe me, so I'm going to send you a photo of my passport to prove it. Everybody knows me as Angelina because that's the name my father wanted to call, name me. But when I was born, my mother wanted to name me Maria Magdalena. And that's what's on my birth certificate. And she said, when I was growing up in Greece, one day, one of my best friends called me Maggie. And I loved it. And from that point on, only my best friends called me Maggie. And I said, whoa, now I said, wait a minute, wait. Maggie is not a nickname for Magdalena, is it? That's just what I thought up for Mary Magnum. She says, no, it's not. But one of my best friends called me Maggie and I loved it. And so it stuck with me. So the next morning, I get this poem. Well, I'm getting poems every morning from Mary Magnum, right? But the first one that comes through the next morning says, Ah, Joseph, when things like this happen, it is magical and fun. Angelina to Magdalena to Maggie. Who would have thought? And from across the sea. And we even look alike. So run, my dear, and jump and sing that when you look at her, you're seeing me. Still gives me shivers up and down my spine every time. And I've told this story hundreds of times. So that was the first time she dealt with my doubts and fears. 
And but the important thing for your listeners is you would think after that, I would never have a doubt again, right? But that's not how ego works. Ego is relentless. So a few months later, I'm having doubts and fears again. But now, whenever I get doubts and fears, I don't have to ask her for, you know, a show me thing. She just nips it in the bud, like she did with, uh, with uh, uh, Migdalia. Uh, but just to give you one more story, because, I, you know, this is so important because doubts and fears are what stop, stops it. most people in their tracks. I was having doubts again, uh, and one morning out of the blue, Maggie says, look up Carlos Constantino. Now for you listeners who don't know Carlos, back in the 60s, uh, Carlos was a, a doctoral, anthropology doctoral student at UCLA, and he uh, became uh, um, a student of a, a Yaqui shaman in Arizona. And he would go out and uh, spend time with this shaman. This shaman taught him all the Yaqui ways of uh, knowledge. And he wrote the book, uh, you know, Don Juan, The Teachings of Don Juan. That was the first book. He wrote many after it, all international bestsellers, just, you know, really phenomenal books in, in his day. And, but the controversy was his critics said, oh, he made all this stuff up. Don Juan doesn't exist, it's fictional. And so uh, I remember, because uh, I have a degree in anthropology, so I, I, I know the story intimately. Carlos would, cha would challenge that criticism by saying, you know, Don Juan exists. And I met, the first time I met him, was in the Nogales bus station in Arizona. But I always remembered that. Well, so now Maggie's asking me to look up Carlos and I'm thinking, well, I know everything about Carlos, you know? She said, look him up. <laughs> Just look him up. So I, I Googled Carlos and I'm just reading stuff that I already know about him, right? Then on the sidebar, there's a title that says, I can confirm uh, Carlos Castaneda's meeting with Don Juan in Nogales, Arizona. And I thought, well, now that's interesting. So I clicked on that. And it's a story about a guy who knew Carlos and he was traveling in Mexico and he was coming up to cross into the States when he got sick. And instead of crossing over, he decided to recuperate in the suburb of Nogales, uh, Mexico. And the importance of that is that if he had just crossed over while he was sick, he would have missed the meeting with Carlos. So when he recuperated and he crossed over, he was waiting to catch a bus at the Nogales bus station. There was Don Juan and Carlos. Well, the town, he decided to recuperate in a suburb from Nogales, Mexico, Magdalena. The name of the town is Magdalena. And Maggie was telling me, and that's the first time Maggie told me, when you were lying in bed, 
waiting across the street. That was me. That was my grace flowing through you. And so, you know, that's uh, now some, somebody asked me one time, well, why you? Why is she uh, giving these poems to you? Why did she choose you? And nobody had, had, had ever asked me that. So I didn't have time to really give it some thought. It just out of my mouth came, well, it's, uh, she didn't choose me. It's a matter of being receptive. I've always been open-minded and receptive, right? So I know a lot of your listeners are going to say, well, you know, that's fine for me because I'm aware of these things and I, I can have these reference points to go back to. But, you know, I, you know, at the time these things happened, I wasn't aware of angels, you know, but I remember the events. So if you just become receptive and open your heart, because it's through your heart that your angels speak to you. Well, they speak in many different ways, but most often through your heart. That, you know, if you're just receptive, you can have these same experiences and it helps you deal with the doubts and fears when you start living your purpose, living your life. Um, that was a long answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but fascinating. And to see, and it's so true when we look back, right? We can start to see those connections and we don't, yes. we don't make it in the yes. moment. Right. But yeah. That's yeah. what Steve Jobs said. You know, if you, if you listen to Steve Jobs' uh, commencement speech, be, you know, just before he died, he talks about that, right? Connecting, you can't connect the dots while you're living through it. It's only afterwards, when you have those reference points, you can go back to them and start connecting them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what does healing with creativity mean to you? This is a question I ask everyone. Well, healing with creativity means just uh, you have to be receptive. You have to be open to alternative ways of doing things, you know. Um, you know, uh, it's just, uh, and I think uh, another way of saying that is just drop the resistance, right? Drop the resistance, you know. Steve Harvey says, you know, if you just, if you just forgive and let go, just surrender, you know, you can get to all the wonderful places God has been trying to take you to. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. So it's just dropping resistance. And you don't even have to believe in angels. You know, you can just to intuition, call it intuition if you want to. You know, uh, angels don't care what you call it. <laughs> I believe in angels because I've seen them and I felt them. And, uh, and I was never looking for it never happened that way. It wasn't going out. So oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start seeing angels. No, it just happened because I was receptive. Yeah. At the first time, it happened. Uh, uh, it happened consciously. You know, no gallus. I, I, I just didn't know what it was. But in 1988, I met a Reverend John Lawrence, and he he was 90 in his 90s at the time. And he invited me over for breakfast to his uh, apartment one morning. 
So I went over and uh, he wanted to meditate together. So we had a, we were facing each other with a coffee table in between us. And we started meditating. And sometime during the meditation, his foot kicked the leg of the coffee table. And, you know, he's 90 years old. So I wanted to make sure he's okay, but I didn't want to disturb the meditation. So I just kind of, just slightly opened my eyes. And he was looking like he had seen a ghost. Uh, and as he was looking above my head. And then he composed himself and went back to meditating. So I, I did the same. Well, when it was time for me to leave, he excused himself and he came back and he said, I want to give you this. And it's a crucifix. And I said, this is what I saw hovering above your head. Well, you know, it's a, it was a nice present, and, but it, uh, I wasn't religious. So a crucifix, you know, at the time, I didn't know what it really meant <clears throat> for me. Anyway, I took it, said goodbye. I walked up to my car. And you know how you get in your car and close the door? That's what I did. I closed the door. But when I closed the door, there was this bam. And I swear it was the whole vehicle was encased in the bubble of white light. And it felt like it was three feet off the ground. And now I knew of the white light because there were a lot of books at the time being published about the white light stuff. And anyway, I, don't, I cannot tell you how I got home. But I got home and uh, I sat down to eat and I took a forkful of food. I brought it to my mouth and I could not get it past the bubble. The vibration of the food was so different from the vibration of the white light. It couldn't penetrate the bubble. So for one week, all I could do was take freshly squeezed juices through a straw through the side, side of my mouth. I could not just drink them. And it couldn't be store-bought juices. They had to be freshly made. And that lasted for a week, and then it dissipated. And that was my first conscious awareness of, uh, I wouldn't say angels, but, you know, the white light, you know, and something beyond, you know, what we're experiencing in our mundane world. So I keep this with me. In 1988, I still carry it with me every day. Uh, and now I believe it was just uh, this, it symbolized uh, uh, the death of my old self and a birth, or I wouldn't say birth, the conscious awareness of who I really am, which is uh, I come from source. Yeah. And I, I think that's an important thing for us to remember, too, that regardless of whether or not you're religious or, you know, whatever way you lean, is that we all come from source, right? Mm -hmm. We all come from a creator of, and, and we're all connected in that way. Right, well. right. And, and being open to that, I think, is so important. Yeah. So you've been writing every morning for years now. What is that? Mm -hmm. like? 2012. So. Yeah. So 10 years now. Yeah. And what, how is that healing for you? Well, it's a, it's an unconscious healing. 
And it's a healing that uh, it's like we have this awareness of who we are, but it's all covered with doubts and fears of um, societies labeling us, uh, you know, parents labeling us or parents ingraining in us, well, you can't do this, you can't do that, you know. And when, for me, every morning when I, it's around two to 4 a.m., she wakes me up. And it's like just peeling the layers of that onion off and getting, becoming more aware, more aware, and more aware, less judgmental, uh, less resistance. You know, it's just a gradual unpeeling, getting to the core of your awareness of who you really, really are, which is, you know, uh, what, however you want to call it, child of God or a fragment of source or, you know, you know, call it what you want, but, you know, it's, it's something beyond who we are physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I don't even know what I want to say to that, but yeah, I think that's a really important thing to remember. And the world has really changed over the last couple of years with COVID and how it's affected everybody. Have mm -hmm. you noticed that? And what, what has anything changed for you or have you noticed it for other people? Uh, I've noticed it for me. Uh, I live out in the country. Uh, I have a five acre homestead here, so I don't have really close neighbors and I try not to go into town if I don't have to. Uh, so during the pandemic, uh, I'm pretty, I, I've been pretty isolated. So I can speak for myself. It does create stress. Um, you know, I do watch the, uh, the news minimally, uh, just to keep, you know, what's going on, but, uh, you know, all this, uh, you know, people are just acting bizarrely, you know, you know, People, Maggie's message through all her poetry is only love is real. Only love is real. And, you know, you see people going off on other people. And the reason they do that is because they believe for some reason they can act in an uncivilized manner thinking that the other person is going to act in a civil manner. You know? And that's the only reason they do it. I mean, people like that are cowards. And they think, you know, the bully thinks that the other person isn't going to retaliate so they can be a bully, right? And that's all the people are becoming. They're becoming these bullies in there. And I think, uh, you know, the stress of the pandemic is, uh, is fertile ground for that behavior. Uh, I don't, uh, I'm just the opposite. I, I'm very conscious of my, of my uh, actions. And uh, I do get stressed at times. And uh, uh, I do get impatient with people, you know, particularly if they're being bullies. But Again, that's all resistance, you know, and you just have to, 
Here's an important point for your listeners. Ego comes in thousands of different forms. Anger, uh, depression, bullying, fear, uh, you know, judgment. You know, it comes in all these disguises. And I used to fight with my ego. And, you know, when you fight with ego, you always lose. The ego is not going to lose when you fight with it. So one day out of frustration, I just decided to befriend it. I said, I'm going to make friends with my ego. So now, and the rate, the way I do that is whenever ego, you know, appears in the form of criticism or anger or impatience or whatever it is, now I just automatically, well, in the beginning, I verbally said it. Um, but now I don't have to do that. But uh, in the beginning, I would say, thank you for reminding me to stay in my heart. And so now ego became, instead of an enemy, it became my friend who keep, keeps me in my heart. <laughs> All right? So that, that's how I use ego now. And, and that's what I do, you know, because... Uh, like the doubts and fears, you know, you could think after that burning bush with Angelina that I would never have a doubt again, but that's not how it works. You know, if you have the courage to walk your path, you know, the doubts and fears are always going to be there. The ego is, is never gives up, you know. So uh, you just, you have to be as relentless as ego is relentless. I like the idea of befriending ego because, you know, use it as a reminder instead of letting it take over. And well, and that, and that connects into the thought that everything happens for you. You know, uh, if you want a story, you know, a, a Bible story, I, you can look at Judas, right? Well, I personally believe that Judas was probably one of the greatest of the disciples because Christ knew exactly what was going to happen. So did Judas. So did the other disciples. And somebody had to step up and play that role. And Judas stepped up and played it. And Christ forgave him. Now, see... Here's where it becomes tricky. When, when you believe everything happens for you, there's no reason to forgive because there's no reason to blame, right? Without Judas, Christ would not have been nailed to the cross and everything else that happened after that, right? So Judas played his role, right? And he played it well. Right, and everybody's playing a role. Right, everyone's playing their role. So when you can step back and look at it like you're watching a movie, everybody's just playing their roles. Right, right, and you know you see a bad guy in a movie, you don't, you know, I don't know, maybe some people do, but I don't, I don't think you, you know, you, you, you realize he's an actor or she's an actor right and when the movie's over she, 
but not like that, right? So uh, everybody's just acting, playing the role, you know? You know, I've hurt people. We've all hurt people, but I'm still a good person. And I have remorse for hurting some of the people I've hurt in my life. And I've forgiven myself. See, it becomes really tricky because society says, well, you have to forgive. And if you don't forgive, you're like a sociopath, right? But if everything happens for you, there's really no need to blame anyone and there's no reason to forgive. Because the two have to happen. You can't have one without the other. So if you just accept everything that God brings into your life, what we call good and bad, but God just is neutral. It's just what you need for your destiny to play out, right? So. Yeah. It's a fascinating way to look at it for sure, for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I just wanna thank you so much for being here today. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go today? Well, just have the, you know, have the courage to listen to your heart, uh, to dare to walk your road to Rome. Know that when you do, the doubts and fears are going to step in. And even before, when you even start thinking about doing that, the doubts and fears will come in. And just remember to thank those doubts and fears for reminding you to stay in your heart, listen to your angels or your intuition, whatever you want to call it, and just go, just have the courage, you know, Steve Jobs said in that speech, you know, you know, uh, here's to the crazy ones, right? The troublemakers, the mystics, the rebels, because they change the world. They help humankind evolve, you know? And Paulo Coelho said in his introduction to the alchemist, and I'll paraphrase it, but he said, you know, when you want something in your heart, when you want something, the entire universe conspires to help you get it. And if you feel yourself worthy of the thing you have fought so hard to achieve, then you become an instrument of God. You help the soul of the world and you know why you were here. Basically what Steve Jobs was saying. However, if you feel yourself, now he, he doesn't say this, I'm adding this. If you feel yourself unworthy, you will sabotage your journey all along the way. And if you do happen to achieve your goal, you'll sabotage it and lose it. So feel worthy, know yourself worthy, right? And so one of my affirmations every day is, you know, is I am worthy. I am worthy because you have to affirm that over and over because we're taught not to be worthy of ourselves. You, you have to just repeat it over and over and over every day. So it, eventually it just gets into your subconscious and then it's in there and, and you really do feel worthy. And so just, um, but that's a process too. And you, you can still walk your road to Rome you know, follow your bliss and not be worthy, but just work on being worthy while you're doing it, right? 
I mean, everybody's, you know, the reason Steve Jobs talked about it is because he went through it. You know, we all go through it. You know, we all go through these periods of not feeling worthy and, uh, and achieving something and losing it, you know, and, uh, you know, beating ourselves up for doing that or, or acting, you know, out of character and, and um, you know, not forgiving ourselves for behaving in the ways that we behave at times. And, you know, we all go through it. It's just uh, the important thing is stay on your path, uh, befriend your doubts and fears, befriend your ego, and uh, stay in your heart. Listen to your heart. Listen to your intuition. And, uh, you know. It's an important message, and I, I wish so many more people would understand that, right? Because we do. We sabotage ourselves if we don't. Right. I don't see that worth. So yeah. 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 Well, I want to thank you so much for being here today. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing what you do. It's important work. Thank you. Yeah. To our listeners, we will see you again next time. And in the meantime, I wish for you amazingly creative days. Thank you for listening. If you found our podcast of interest, we'd love for you to leave a review wherever you listen in. 